We're going to read uh, 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 1 through 17. So if you have your own copy of God's Word, you can follow along there uh, or on the screen. So let's hear God's Word together today. <clears throat> 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 1. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ohio, the son of Abinadab, sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ohio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castnets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry, against, angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told to King David, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in a place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. Amen. You can be seated. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for um, our time of worship already. We pray that you will continue to lead us in a spirit of worship now through your word. God, we pray that uh, all that you intend to accomplish by your word and through the power of your spirit would be done among us uh, even now. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Life uh, is, can be quite a journey sometimes, can it not? All the ups and downs, all the backs and forths, all the good, bad, and otherwise can make life feel uh, like quite quite a journey sometimes. Even people I, I talk to that maybe say, they seem to say, oh yeah, my life is boring, my life is nothing, nothing exciting has happened to me. You just ask a few questions about a few relationships or a few moves or a few transitions or whatever else it may be and come to find out everybody that I've ever talked to has got a pretty interesting story. We've all been through the ups and downs and adventures of life. And I'll, I'll just tell you this, you're, you're an interesting group of people. Do you know that? You're an interesting, and I mean that in the best way possible, I promise. You're a very interesting group of people. And this, uh, this journey of life, it, it, it has a beginning when we're born, and we're all headed somewhere. 
not just, not just at the end of our life and last breath, but we are, we are on a path. We are headed somewhere. God's intention, God's desire is that His creation, us as, his, as the, 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 the male and female that He's created us in His image, He intends and desires that all of us would come to be back with Him for eternity. And for all who believe in Jesus, all who have their faith in Jesus Christ, we will be back. That's where we're headed. We are headed to being back with God in His presence. That's the, that's the destination of our journey. Worshiping Him in splendor and in all the glorious things that heaven's going to be in. So have you ever wondered why God didn't just make us and just put us at the end? You know what I mean? Like couldn't He have just, and He could have, He's God, of course. But what He could have done is He could have just created people, he could have called us whatever he wanted, but created male and female and just plop, put us in heaven. That could have been what he did. But apparently God had a better design, because if it wasn't better, he wouldn't do it. He had a better design that intended for us to go through this journey, to go through the, the ups and downs and the goods, bads and uglies. He had a plan and an intention for all of what we do in this world to matter for eternity. He intended for it to be a part of our journey and our story. Or you can say, well, maybe he just, you know, he needed to send Jesus. But everybody after Jesus, instead of going through this life, couldn't we just be dropped in heaven? Wouldn't it have been easier, God? Maybe. But God had an intention that had, he, he saw value, he saw worth in all us going through all the ups and downs before we get there. I think one of the things God intends, of course, we don't know the mind of God. He has intentions far beyond what we can comprehend. But what, we can, what I can comprehend and reading the way the scriptures are written and applying that to us, is that I think what's going on is that all of the ups and downs of life and journey and adventure and all the craziness that it is, it, it, when we bring that to God in worship, God is more magnified through that. When, when we can bring all the good, bad, and otherwise and come and bring that as a part of our worship, we can say, even though I've been through that and that, even though I've had the good, even though I've had the bad, I can still come and worship Him. God is magnified through that. And I think that's what's going on in passages like we have today in 1st and 2nd Samuel. Today, our, our theme is worship, because that's where the passage ends. I read you part of 2nd Samuel chapter 6, and that's our focus. That's the, the worship that this passage climaxes in. But I don't want to skip over the journey that it took to get there. And we've been going through 1st and 2nd Samuel now for this fall, and this, was, this is just one of the climaxes, but this is a critical moment in the story of David, especially in David's kingship. And I think it's important to notice this trajectory, this path, because it's not just, this isn't the only time God does something like this. We saw last week where David was in exile. He was on the run. And so our passage starts in exile and ends in worship. Starts out in the run, out on the run, out in the wilderness, and ends with David as the newly established king in the new city of Jerusalem, surrounding the Ark of the Covenant, praising God from exile to a glorious picture of worship. And we said last week that David's life in many ways mirrors what's going to happen to Jesus, one of his descendants, a thousand years later. We saw, said last week Jesus was crucified outside the city. He went into exile for us so that we could be brought into the presence of God. So in many ways, Jesus' life does the same thing. He goes into exile. He's out in the wilderness. And where does his life end up? After the, his crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection, he ascends back to the Father in glory. He goes from exile to glory. And our life has the same pattern. 
We are living as exiles, we said last week on this earth, but where we're headed is to glory. We're headed to this path, on this path, this trajectory to be back with our Heavenly Father in His glorious presence, worshiping Him forever. So our emphasis, our, the point of this passage is that, that trajectory, where we're headed, we're headed to worship. And the journey we go along the way, I think, makes that, that time of worship all the more spectacular. When we can go through the journey of our life and still end in worship, it gives God all, the much, all that much more praise. I want you to, to, to continue reading this on your own because there's so many things that we, we can't touch in this passage. But I want you to just to see a, a little bit of the story, a little bit of this journey that David is on. Because we, we have this kind of false idea of, of worship is just one, one little part of our life and then I go do life. And then I go do worship on Sundays and I do life. Or, or you know, you sanctify a little bit. I'll worship God for 10 minutes uh, at my dining room table in the morning. And then I go do life. And then on Sundays I do an hour of worship, you know, because I come to church and do life. But that's, that's not the picture here. The picture here of, of David's life and our lives is that all the journey is a part of our worship, a part of our praise to God. And so as we aim this toward the end of our lives, we're also seeing how it impacts our daily lives, all the ins and the outs. So if you go back with me to 1 Samuel chapter 31, we get a picture there of God bringing judgment upon his, the one who had rejected him just as he had promised. 1 Samuel 31, the very last chapter of that book, is where Saul goes out to battle just as he was prophesied, as it was prophesied what would happen. And he dies out on the battlefield. And the way the story is written, it's meant for us to see the shame that comes upon him. He is, he is struck, wounded in a very deep way by arrows from the enemy of the Philistines, but he doesn't quite die. And so he asks his armor bearer to kill him, but the armor bearer rightly knows that he shouldn't kill God's king, even though he's about to die. So Saul takes his own life with his own sword so that he doesn't get tortured by the Philistines. And then the picture from there gets worse. They take his body, the, the enemies come and take his body, and they parade it around as a way of saying, we have beaten the, the king of the Israelites. It's a shameful way to die for this king, this one who was meant to be the, the anointed, the first anointed king of Israel, and yet he dies a shameful death. As Saul dies his death, we're meant to see the, 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 the pain and the consequences of rejecting God. Our life is intended to come back to God and worship, but that's not the only trajectory possible. For those that have rejected him like Saul, there is a, a terrible, awful, awful other option of being living a life, living an eternity separated from him. We're meant to read Saul's story as a warning. And following, um, when we think about following God, we may say that's, that's a hard life to go, right? Following God's not easy. But Saul's a picture of the alternative. It's not better. It's way worse. It's way worse. So that's, the end. that's how 1 Samuel ends until you turn the page onto 2 Samuel and you realize this sounds like the same story and it's because it is. 1 and 2 Samuel originally, were, are, are, they are, they're written as one book, but it was just about the scroll length. You can only fit so much on one scroll, so they flipped it over and the backside became 2 Samuel. Same one book, that's why we're preaching this all together. And when you start in 2 Samuel, you're like, wait, this sounds like the same story, but told in a little different way. And if you read closely, you're like, wait, there's some details that sound different from 1 Samuel 31. And an attentive reader will notice that in the 1 Samuel 31, we get the story of Saul's life as told by the narrator, the person who's telling us this whole story. 
The details we get in 2 Samuel chapter 1 are told by an Amalekite, which is an enemy nation of the Israelites. And we have no reason to believe that this Amalekite would want to tell us the truth. So as we go through his story, we realize he has switched a few things, a few details, so that it would be to his advantage. So you read 1 Samuel 31, you say, this is the story. 2 Samuel chapter 1, you say, ah, the Amalekite has twisted the story, has told us some lies to help his own case. He says that he just so happens, uh, it says he happens by chance to be on the mountain where Saul dies. And he said that Saul asked him to kill him, to take his life. And he wanted to, just out of be, to be merciful to Saul, to, to kill him. And he just so happens to have Saul's crown and the bracelet that, that would have proven that this really was Saul that died. But the Amalekite traveled a long way. It would have been multiple days' journey to go report this news back to David. Now, why would an exiled enemy man want to bring this stuff to David, just out of the goodness of his own heart, to just encourage David and help him? No, he was looking for a government job. He was looking for a way to say, hey, this, this guy is the guy that killed Saul, and now David could be king. Everybody around David thought, hey, we're going to kill Saul for the sake of David. But David over and over again says, no, that's a bad idea. So then we think, we're pretty sure, the Amalekite's lying, and then he's executed for his lie. It didn't go the way he intended for it to go. First and second Samuel, first Samuel ends with that story. Second Samuel begins with that story. And so this is the turning point where David becomes king, where David now the finally the, the one who's been prophesied to die, to, to, for his reign to end, Samuel to end, happens. And the journey of David starts its path now from out of exile and into the kingship. And the very first thing David does, even before he actually takes care of the Amalekite for his sin, is that he grieves the loss of not only Saul, but also his best friend, Jonathan. And this part of the journey, I think, is so important for us to just stop and see for many reasons. One of them being, it's often a part of our journey, isn't it? Grief is a part of our journey. It can be easy to come to the Bible and celebrate the David winning Goliath and celebrate the David and Jonathan friendships and not recognize the grief that comes because of that kind of friendship. If he didn't love somebody deeply, he wouldn't have been grieving, right? But this is a part of our journey too. Our path from being born and back to God in His presence often entails a period of grief, whether it be a loved one or a hardship we go through, a time of struggling and suffering. And we get a picture in 2 Samuel chapter 1 of David writing a beautiful poem, grieving, publicly grieving those that have been lost. And another reason that's so amazing is he doesn't just grieve his best friend, Jonathan. He also grieves Saul, who was wicked and evil. There's a place of humility here in David's heart to recognize that his path to glory, his path to coming into the kingship God promised, includes grieving over those that have come before him, even those that were wicked. It's good and it's right for grief to be a part of our journey. God intends for us to grieve the hard things in life, God doesn't wash over them and say that all oh, life's going to be easy and you shouldn't, you shouldn't feel any emotion about the bad things that happen. It's just all going to work out and just, just don't, don't worry too much about it. Jesus wept. David wept. You can weep too. You can weep over things that are hard. We have a good picture there of that being an important part of our journey. And as David continues his path toward glory, his path toward his kingship, we get the very next step in chapter 2. 
It says this, after David inquired, after this, David inquired of the Lord. At any critical juncture, including just waking up tomorrow, that's a good step to take. Inquire of the Lord. Our journey from wherever we start to coming back to God is going to entail a lot of times where we need direction. Whether it's after grief or just just a daily, daily pattern of our life, if we're coming back to God on our way back to God, this pattern that we see in David's life ought to be the pattern in our life too, of consistently inquiring, God, I need help. I need direction. I need vision. I need, I need, a, the, I need to know the next step for me to go. And so David comes and inquires. He asks, God, is this the time? Am I supposed to go back to Israel? Am I supposed to be the king now? David said, God says to David, yes, go to Hebron and take your place. So 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse 3 and 4 read, And David brought up his men who were with him, everyone with his household, and they lived in the towns of Hebron. And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. I know just reading that one verse, those two verses to you may not seem like a big deal, but if you've been slowly tracking through 1 Samuel and now into 2 Samuel with us, that's been a long time coming. <laughs> It was 1 Samuel 16 when God looked at David, sent Samuel to David, and David was told, you're going to be the next king. That was a long time ago for David. Probably over 10 years, he has been waiting for this moment. But God kept his promise. God is faithful to his promises. As we go through our lives and our journey from birth all the way coming back to God, we come to God's word and we see the promises he gives us. And there can be a temptation to say, okay, you said this and I want it today, God. Can we put this, this, this promise in the microwave so we can just be ready in like three minutes? Can we go right now, God? We have a, a desire for things to hurry. We want God to be on our timeline and our, we want our plans to be all figured out like, our, like we want them. God, God's timing is not our timing. God's will is not our will. God does keep his promises in his time and his way. Just go back to where we were last week and all the times David was on the run. Multiple times he almost died. All the times that he felt like this is just, there's just no good path forward. But God kept his promise. David became king in, in God's time, not David's timing. God is faithful to his promises. On our path to, to worship, on our path to exalting God and worshiping him for all of eternity, this is a really helpful reminder, is it not? Because there can be a desire to give up sometimes, to say, I, I, I know you promised this, God. I know you promised to be with me, but I don't see you. Where are you? I can't find you. But God is with us. God is directing us. God keeps his promise. We can trust the faithfulness of God. Let that lead us into worship. No sooner had David taken command than a rival nation forms so 2 Samuel 2, 4 is where he becomes king. 2 Samuel 2, 8, just a few verses later, says this, But Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over Mahanim, and he made him king over Gilead and the Asherites, and Jezreel and Ephraim and Benjamin and all of Israel. So that is, David had a kingship. But one of the sons of Saul becomes king over parts of, they had all these different tribes. So half, the, half or so of the country was with David. Now half the country is with this son of Saul named Ishbosheth. So David takes 10 giant steps forward. He comes to Israel. He is the king. And then he takes eight giant steps backwards because half the kingdom is now living in rebellion against David, the true king. 
Doesn't that sound a lot like life? I finally get the thing that was promised. We finally get married. We finally have a kid. We finally get the job we were wanting. We finally get this. Here's 10 steps forward. And then the bad thing happens. The tragedy happens. It's eight steps back. That's a picture of life, is it not? That's a picture of our journey where we look like things are heading in the right direction. This is good. This is glorious. This is going toward God. And yet here's another valley. Here's another hardship. Here's another struggle that we have to face. All of our journeys in life feel that way. Three steps forward, two steps back. And this period had to be just brutally painful for David and for all the people of Israel. We even get this account of a, tw- a battle between a 12 on 12 battle in 2 Samuel chapter 2, uh, starting in like verse 12 to, f- to 16 there. And they, they say, okay, instead of our nations, kind of like the David versus Saul one-on-one thing, this time they say, all right, David's 12 men, 12 best men, and, and Ishbosheth's 12 men. They'll go to battle and we'll just, you know, that way not everybody has to die. It'll just be these 12 men and the winner of that takes all. Well, what happens in that battle is that all 24 men die. <laughs> so it doesn't solve anything. One commentator I read said he was, God's pointing out here that when we have civil war, nobody wins. Nobody wins. This, is not, that does, this war is not going to be a good thing for Israel. This rival nation has started. It's going to be an ugly path forward. And sure enough, it is brutal. David's military co- uh, commander, Joab, one of his brothers, is killed in the battle. So that's an important part of the story. And then as Abner grows and Abner in uh, Ishbosheth in this rival nation, he gets more power. Ishbosheth gets jealous. And so he makes a false accusation against Abner. There's going to be a quiz on all these details later, so pay attention. I'm just giving you a sense of the, how complicated and difficult it is. Uh, Ishbosheth uh, gets, makes that false accusation against Abner. So Abner gets mad and he leaves and goes over to David and says, I'm going to be on your team now. But Joab, his commander, didn't like that. So Joab sneaks around and kills Abner. And it just, it's not good. Uh, there's two brutal men who go and kill Ishbosheth in his sleep. And so now the false, in, false rival nation's military leader and king have been executed. Okay, it takes a long time, but I give you, that's the short version. That's what happens. And you would think in that moment right there, David would throw a party. Finally, that rival nation, it took a long time, but finally that rival nation has been killed. But you know what we get in David in that moment? David mourns their death. David doesn't celebrate anybody who sneaks around and kills somebody else. doesn't matter what the story is. That's not a good idea, David says. Not a good idea. So we get another picture of David mourning. He mourns Abnar uh, in 2 Samuel chapter 3, the, the, the military leader of the rival nation. And David is mourning him. This, this heart behind David, David's desire to do the right thing is incredible. He, he doesn't, he, he's going to fight injustice without himself being unjust. That's incredible. So many times the temptation of, I'm going to be the good guy, so I can do whatever I want because my ends are going to justify my means. And David's not going to take that path. He's going to prove, he's going to see this kingdom and say, if we, if we start this infighting thing where I kill you and you kill me, where's that, where's that going to end? It won't end. So David doesn't celebrate any of these murders, even though they are to his advantage. He continues to pursue righteousness which is what we saw a lot of his time in exile. Chapter 5 tells us of, of David being anointed over the whole king, kingdom of Israel. Finally, all the country comes together, and then they, become, they begin to establish a new, uh, a new capital city in Jerusalem. It was previously held by a group called the Jebusites, who were so proud of their city and how strong and fortified it was, they taunted David by saying, 
Even the blind people and the lame people among us, they can fend off David. He can't take this city. David snuck in through a water shaft and took over the city and they won. David won. What do you know? God continues to use David in his kingdom. So they have a new capital city. David is on his throne. And 2 Samuel 5, 11 tells of King Hiram uh, of Tyre sent messengers to David and cedar trees and carpenters and masons who built David a house. So as of 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 11, look how far David has come. Just a few chapters ago, and I summarized a big part of, it wasn't as easy as I made it sound, you know, but it's a big section here. Just a little while ago, David was on the run. You remember where the passage ended last week? He thought his wife and children and everybody had been taken. They just, barely, just got them back. They're on exile. They're in a foreign land. And here they are a few chapters later. David is in a brand new capital city. They have unified the entire country of Israel underneath his, his reign and his control. He's got a brand new house built out of cedar, which was a big deal back then. And everything's at peace. If you're David, what's next? If you're David, what's next? He has been blessed beyond blessing. Everything is going well for him. If you and I, I think here's the temptation. If you and I were in that boat, because this is what happened so many times in other, to other kingships, we would just say, look at me. Look at what I have done. Look at my glory and my kingdom and my new city and my new house and look how strong my military leadership is that I am now reigning over the whole nation of Israel. He, he, he. Right? Is that what David does? David says no. There's one more really important step to take. David has been on this journey all the way back from the time he was out in the pasture watching over the sheep. Wasn't even invited to meet the new prophet Samuel coming into town. He comes in, anointed as king a long time ago in 1 Samuel 16, all this long journey. And he says, you know what we need to do? We need to worship the Lord. We need to worship the Lord. 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 1 says, David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. David has what looks like everything. He has everything, all that he could possibly need. But he says there's one thing missing. We're still missing the ark. Now, if you're just jumping in today's message or just jumping into the Bible here, you're like, what's an ark and why do you need it? It's not raining outside. Different kind of ark. This ark is the ark of the covenant, and we haven't seen it in the Samuel books of, books of Samuel since back in 1 Samuel chapter 7. In chapter 4, the, the priest had brought the Ark of the Covenant out to battle to try to manipulate God into winning this battle for him. And the Philistines captured it and then eventually brought it back because that didn't go well for them. But then they had to put the Ark of the Covenant in just a different person's house because they didn't know how to handle it. You go back to the, the story of Moses, the story of the Exodus generation. The Ark of the Covenant, is, it was not some magical or, or, um, or, or um, idol type thing, idol worship. The Ark of the Covenant simply represents God's presence. It had all these very symbolic parts to it and all these different very specific regulations about it. And the point of it was this was a symbol of God's presence dwelling with His people. Does that sound like any other story you know? God wanting to be with His people. 
The Ark of the Covenant was the central part of the tabernacle and the central part of the camp of the Israelites as they wandered through the desert. And the point was, our almighty God, who has rule over all the kingdoms and all the universe and all the stars and the galaxies, He wants to be with us. That's the point of the Ark of the Covenant. And the top of the Ark of the Covenant was called the mercy seat. It's this picture of God's judgment, Him sitting in judgment on His people, but doing so with a heart of mercy, showing grace. It's gracious that He would even know us, that He would be with us. So David says, we got to have the ark because we can have all the kingdoms. We can have all the treasures, all the temple, all the palaces or whatever else. But if God's presence is not with us, we have nothing. We have nothing. This sounds a lot like a time in Moses's life right after the golden calf sin of the people of Israel. The people of Israel had turned away from worshiping God. They worship a golden calf. And God says, they all deserve to die, all of Israel. Moses says, please don't kill us all, David. Moses says, I mean, God says to Moses, okay, let's do this. I won't kill them all. You can still have the promised land. Milk and honey, it's going to be good. You go, but I'm not going to go with you. That's the deal that God offers to Moses as a test. And Moses says, I don't want it. I, I, if you're not going to go, I'm not going to go. He says, if it, uh, this is Exodus 33. If your presence does not go, I don't want to. Oh, sorry, he says, um, oh, I'm reading the, the Shane and Shane song. Uh, Exodus 33, 14, he said, my presence will go with you and I will go. Um, he said, yeah, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. If you don't, if you're not going with us, God, I don't want to go there. And that's what I was quoting. The Shane and Shane wrote a song uh, called Without You. They sing, if your presence goes, I don't want to stay. If your presence stays, I don't want to go. Right. You give me all the material plus pleasures and possessions of the world. If God is not with us, we have nothing. That was Moses' heart, and that was David's heart. So he's enthusiastic for the right thing. He wants to worship God, and yet he forgets something very important. Second, that David does. 2 Samuel 6, 3 and 4. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out to the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ohio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ohio went before the ark. The mistake here is the cart. The mistake is how this is treated, how it is carried. Numbers chapter 4 gives very specific instructions about how to handle, how to, how to dwell, a sinful people dwelling with a holy God. And so sure enough, it does not go well. 2 Samuel 6, 6. Now when they came to the threshing floor of Nakan, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. And God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark. Numbers chapter 4, verse 15, the instructions here said, The sons of Koah shall come and carry these, but they, shall, they must not touch the holy things lest they die. Many times I have come to this passage. Maybe you, as you read this, you say, What is the big deal, God? He just touched the box. He was just trying to help make sure it didn't fall. He was actually helping you. But what we see here is that David, in his exuberance, and the people of Israel, in all their excitement, they're excited to be with God, but they have forgot something really important. God is really holy, and we are really not. The whole point of all the Levitical system, all these rules, all these regulations, is our almighty God is not just our buddy-buddy. We can do whatever we want and treat Him however we want. God is holy and majestic above all things. And there is a reverence, an awe, a, a wonder that should be in our hearts when we come into God's presence. Modern ears may read 2 Samuel 6 as, that's a little too harsh. 
But when we're honest, it's amazing that any of them survived this moment. It's not amazing that just one died. I mean, it's, amazing. it's not amazing that somebody died. It's amazing that not everybody died. God is holy and righteous. Many times when we see God's holiness on display in the Bible, the thing right after it we see is how sinful and wicked we realize we are. Isaiah gets a vision of God's grandeur and holiness sitting on a throne where his, God's robe is filling the whole temple and the walls are shaking. These angelic beings are crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. It's the only attribute of God that's, that's repeated three times, holy, holy, holy. There's an incredible picture of God's holiness. And what's Isaiah's reaction? Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. When we are on our journey in life, all the ups and downs, all the trajectories, whatever, whatever's going on, and we're looking forward to eternity, we have to remember we worship a holy God. We worship a righteous, majestic king who does not, we, we should not trifle with him. We should not treat him as, as just, I can do whatever I want to God. By God's grace, he sent his son. We don't have to have the, 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 the rituals and the, the, the real specific um, things of the Old Testament. But the same God of Ark of the Covenant and Uzzah's death here is the same God who is today. He doesn't change. God is still just as holy then and now as He was back then. And we have to remember our sin. Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sin. Sin has spread to all of us from the very beginning and is far more infectious and far more deadly than any other pandemic the world's ever seen. We have a sin problem. And God is righteous. God is holy. We can't come and do whatever we want with God. It is easy to make the same mistake as, as David did and underestimate the distance between us and God. It's easy to underestimate how righteous He is. But the God we worship should be honored and revered just like He was back then. The Ark of the Covenant goes to Obed-Edom's home and God blessed them. So David tried another way. Uh, 2 Samuel 6, 12 says, So David went and brought up the ark from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with, with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the covenant had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. So the change he makes is instead of putting it on the cart, he obeys the law and they carry it. They carry the ark like they're called to do. And they make a sacrifice and they celebrate Chapter 6, verse 15. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. All the time leading up to this moment has been climaxing here in this moment of worship. And here's what I want you to hear from 1 Samuel 31 all the way to chapter 6. Worship God with fear and gladness. Worship God with fear and gladness. And all that David's been through, all the journey of his life, he finally gets to this moment and it's this powerful combination of both fear, holiness, honoring God, and absolute joy. Absolute joy. Our worship does not honor God if we're not keeping both of those things together. If you don't have a respect for God, a reverence for Him, then you don't really know Him. But if you just know some information in your head about God and it doesn't lead to a, to a, a sense of joy, then you don't really know Him. God calls us to worship with fear and with joy. David makes incredible steps here to show how, how awesome this moment would be for him. 
There is a, a, a sacrifice, so acknowledge the death they deserve to die. So they killed an animal. Praise God, Jesus is our sacrifice once for all. We don't have to make sacrifices like that. But then he leads an incredible amount of dancing and worship. So to end today's time, I'm going to ask you to all stand and dance for us. For, no? Nobody wants to do that? Okay. This, this worship, to be clear, uh, David made some... some um, uh, he did not make a Levitical dance troupe like he later made a Levitical choir and a Levitical orchestra. The dance here is not a regimented, uh, organized, weekly thing on a, on a schedule. This is the overflow of their heart. This is the overflow of David's heart. He's rejoicing with joy and celebrating God so much. He just, he, it's like his body can't handle it. He's just got to celebrate God even with his arms and legs and dancing around. And do you notice what he's wearing? He wears a linen ephod. He's, isn't he the king? Linen ephod is the garment of the priest. Why would he wear a priest? On this day, the one king of Israel who's finally acknowledging, he's finally a king after God's own heart, he's acknowledging what Saul should have acknowledged long ago. There is one king in Israel, just like there's one king over all of our world today, and it wasn't David, it's not Saul, it's not me, it's not you, it's God. By wearing the priest, he, priestly robe, David was saying, as we come to worship today, we're not worshiping some earthly king. We are worshiping the one true God. So he puts on the priest's robe that day to serve the priestly role of connecting the people to God. And that's the thing that offends Michael, his wife, Saul's, uh, Saul's daughter. And not exactly sure what her motives are there. But she felt like this was uncovering. This was, this was not um, right for a king to wear this thing. This is too low for him. Too low for him to not wear the kingly robe that he's supposed to wear. But David says, no, no, you're missing it. I'm honoring God. He even says in verse 22, I will make myself yet more contemptible. If, if I need to be humbled even more, that's okay. It's all about giving praise to God. How we worship matters. David here took him, it was a hard road. It cost him something. It cost him somebody's life, cost us his life. But he recognized our holy and majestic God deserves to be honored, to be praised to be, to be revered as, as how great as he is. And when we do that, when we see his majesty, it doesn't lead to a, a sense of cowering. It leads to a sense of joy, a sense of wonder, of being around something so majestic that we just can't help it. We got to dance. That's the picture of worship we have in David. A.W. Tozer writes in his book, Knowledge of the Holy, what comes to our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Do you know our holy God? Do you know our righteous God who has never sinned, never done anything wrong, who has had pure motives and a plan from the world from before eternity past? Do you know how majestic and gracious and wonderful He is? If so, that's what comes to your mind, and it should lead to joy. It should lead to worship. So yes, probably some of us that come from a traditional background could probably stand to actually dance a little bit more, you know, as we sing and praise. That's a good thing. But even more than what you're doing with your body, what's going on in your heart? And not just during 1030, but throughout the week. Is, your, is the knowledge you have of God leading you to a celebration, to a joy of God? Our passage actually ends in 2 Samuel, Samuel chapter 6 with a picture of Michael who's rejecting God just like her dad did Saul, who we saw at the beginning of our passage. So I remind you again, God's trajectory, His plan for us is that we were born in this world, male and female in His image, to come back to God in worship of Him. But that's not the only path available. There is a path of rejecting God available, and it does not lead to a good place.
She is cursed like her father was cursed, and they do not worship him. God has invited all of us to see the holiness of God who sent his perfect son to die in our place so that we could be in his presence, a place of joy, everlasting joy from now and forevermore. Amen.